This podcast is shareable. Shareable is the podcast fueled entirely by curiosity. Every episode features exciting guests who share valuable advice and insights, how-to guides, and practical takeaways. Join me as I explore the awe-inspiring stories about overcoming the odds, the secret formulas that gave each guest their unique superpower, and the moments that remind us of our shared humanity. Get ready to be excited, delighted, and possibly even astonished, because this podcast is shareable. Today, we're doing a shareable masterclass. Aaron Burnett is here and we're going to talk. But first, who are you? What are you about? What do people need to know about you, man? Well, I'm Aaron Burnett. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Wheelhouse Digital Marketing Group. Been around for 13 years. Work with all sorts of different clients on the large side. We work with NASA. We have for five years or so. Work with a lot of healthcare and medical device uh, clients as well. And some mid-market uh, B2B, uh, lead gen and e-commerce clients as well. Married for uh, 30 years in three months. Uh, and I have two daughters. And sort of a fun fact, I met my wife in Malaysia. She's from New Zealand. I'm from the US. We got engaged uh, in seven days and married about three and a half months after that. What? Okay, so much there. And I feel like we could do a whole master class on like how one goes about deciding you're going to marry someone within seven days. But uh, <laughs> my I daughters also, have questions about that. I, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but the NASA part, when you said it, I it it like took me aback. But then I remembered we this is our, actually our reschedule of doing this because you actually had something you had to deal with. Uh, for yes. Client. So that is super cool. Um, can you briefly talk a little bit about kind of what it is that you do with some of these clients? And um, I know you know, maybe with NASA, there might be some things you can't talk about, but in general, like what sort of work are you doing? How are you helping these clients in what sort of ways? What's your background? Yeah, I'll give you a, a couple of different flavors of that answer. So for um, most clients, we're a performance marketing agency. So that means that although our clients are really diverse, in general, they're looking for some sort of transactional outcome. We're delivering business value. So it's lead generation. It's an e-commerce transaction. We're engaging in the context of Organic search, so content strategy, content marketing, SEO, digital advertising, all focused on driving conversions. We've got a marketing science team as well, which is business intelligence, advanced analytics, and engineering. So we're doing everything from developing really complex custom engineering solutions for clients in a way that delivers value, leads, e-commerce, that sort of thing, to uh, complex content strategies, digital advertising campaigns. For NASA, the flavor is a little bit different and yet similar. Uh, a big project we're involved with there is consolidating about 30 of their websites into a single site. So that's consolidating about two and a half million pages of content into a new unified site structure uh, and a content strategy for that structure. And what that's required is crawling all of those pages using natural language processing to identify the content on the pages and then databasing what was unstructured content in a structured fashion so that we can build a new content strategy and a new site architecture for a new unified site. So the fun part about all of this, as I see it, is that I could geek out with you about all of the uh, intricacies of marketing strategy 
engineering and building solutions, automation, uh, all of the various things that go into all of that because my background uh, is in is in marketing. But that's actually not why we're here today, which is, I think, the most uh, interesting redirect we may have ever had on, on Shareable because we're not actually going to be talking today about marketing strategy, lead generation, performance uh, marketing. We're not going to be talking about advertising. We're not going to be talking about social media or content. We're going to be talking about culture. If, I, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you have a unique perspective on culture. So do me a favor and a favor for the audience. Start out by telling us What's the lesson we're going to cover in today's masterclass? What do you want to talk about that you think is shareable? I want to talk about the power of helpfulness and generosity in animating company culture, driving business growth, and changing the nature of business relationships. I'm locked in. I'm ready for it. I'm in. It's why I wanted you on for this episode. It's why I wanted to do this masterclass because I'm all about every single one of the words that you just put in that particular sequence together. So I want to talk about it. Let's set the stage though. I'm in because I'm, I've written a book called The Lovable Leader and that's a perfect dovetail for my thing, right? Like we're, we're simpatico on this, my dude. But for the people listening, who should be listening to this episode right now? Who's the person who should be listening to this? Who's the ideal audience? Why will it be valuable for them to listen to it? Take us through that part. Yeah, I mean, so I'd like to say that everybody should be listening, but I think more specifically, uh, the folks who should be listening are anybody who um, is in a corporate role and the corporate role chafes. There's something about the way that they're being asked to behave, the assumptions that they're being asked to make about other people. And the way they're being asked to engage with other people, either within their own entity or um, in a competitive landscape or with clients, something about that chafes and it feels different in a professional context than they would behave in a personal context. I think even more on the nose is anyone who is in charge of culture, anyone who is leading a business, wants to build a business, grow a business, should be listening. Love it. One of the questions I like to ask clients is, um, who in your company is responsible uh, responsible for the culture? Uh, and uh, I like when when they answer the correct answer, which is everyone, because everyone's a participant in growing and shaping what that culture is. Some people just are in imbued with a, a a larger seat at the table, let's say, to be able to influence and shape that. But everybody contributes in some way or another to what that culture becomes, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. So we talk about that. It's a part of our interview process. And then it's mm -hmm. a refrain here as well. We talk about not just being a consumer of the culture, but being a contributor to the culture. Yeah. That is, that's a barrier to entry. You have to have that mentality, that disposition, and also that desire to join the company. Love it. Uh, before we get into it, I want to really break this thing apart in, in today's masterclass episode, learn about how this works, understand your experience with it. But before we get into what makes it work, I was hoping we could start off a little bit and talk about what does make it work. You use this word chafe, uh, which I think is really descriptive when you think about the abrasiveness that sometimes culture can feel like when it's not working properly. Uh, it doesn't mm -hmm. feel seamless and fluid. It feels like a, a struggle and it it leaves you with a little bit of, uh, you know, emotional razor burn, I guess. Um, what What are the mistakes that are being made that are leading to us not naturally having these sorts of environments. Where does it go wrong in your experience? What do you see um, when it's not working? What causes the chafe? Yeah, so uh, my belief is that uh, the, the enemy of 
powerful culture is conventional thinking. Okay. And, and that was my experience. So I, I uh, in my early professional career, worked at AT&T Wireless. I became an executive there. I was a VP of sales and marketing. I had other similar VP and SVP roles in other companies. And uh, the more senior I became, the more I felt like I was asked to be uh, asked to play a role that wasn't congruent with the things that I held true in my personal life uh, or the way that I would behave in my personal life. It was as though you step into a professional context and the assumptions that you make about people, the things you know about people when you're just walking around, when you're with your friends, when you're with your family, suddenly were held to be untrue. When I was in my personal life, I interact with people who are kind, helpful to me. They're generous to me. Most everyone's a good person. You run into the odd person who's not, but they're really a rarity. You step into a conventional setting and the assumption, particularly in larger companies, and I think this is generally true, is that business is mercenary. And in order for me to win, you have to lose. And almost everyone with whom I interact is out to play an angle in some way. Uh, there are political games that are played within a company. There are assumptions made about competitors. Uh, there are assumptions made about clients and customers as well. And so much of the thinking in a conventional context is that my job, particularly as a senior executive, is to anticipate those angles and protect myself and protect the company against the ill intent of other people. And that is just not my experience in my personal life. So... What I've tried to do at Wheelhouse that's unconventional is to assume that the things I know to be true personally about other people's character and intentions are also true professionally, that most people we interact with would like our help. They're not out to get us. They would like our help. Most people, if you behave generously toward them, they will behave generously toward you as well. If you set up that dynamic and you make clear this is a personal interaction, we're not playing in this other space that's called professional where different rules apply. Uh, and that if you engage people on that level, if you remind them of who they are and that they're still the same person at work that they were at home and you build relationships in that way, that the nature of your business with them fundamentally changes as well. We say explicitly to every new client, we're going to probably do work for you that you won't explicitly pay us for. But the deal that we're making is we'll look out for your best interests and we will rely on you to look out for our best interests. And we'll have confidence that the money will work itself out over time. Maybe not immediately, sometimes actually often, we'll do work in the near term for which we're not compensated. But we know that we'll be made whole eventually, either directly or indirectly. And that has proven to be the case with rare exceptions that now are pretty readily identifiable. So there's a uh, theory, and I, I'm not exactly sure who wrote the book on this or pioneered this, but in the, the theory of negotiation, there's essentially two different kinds. And I became familiar with this through uh, Donald Miller. I think it was through either Business Made Simple or through his Business Made Simple University. There was a talk about um, you know sales and negotiations. And in it, there's this idea that there are two kinds. There's collaborative and competitive. And when you're dealing with a collaborative negotiation, you're trying to find common ground and find a way where both parties are happy with the outcome. But in a competitive one, somebody, uh, some in some cases, both parties are trying to win the negotiation. And when you are approaching something collaboratively and somebody else is approaching it competitively, uh, you have to actually switch your tactic or if you can, which is a rarity, get them to switch their tactic. So 
in a competitive, you have to actually be competitive, even so far as letting someone think that they've won something because that's what they're looking for. Um, or you have to have some method of being able to get them to see that it's a collaborative exchange. So when I heard you talk about um, some of the things that you've experienced personally, that, you know, for the most part, you know, you've experienced people being kind and friendly and things like that. What occurred to me is that um, there's a lot of different experiences that people will have. So as we're having this conversation, talking about how to embody this mindset, how to, you know, engage in certain types of practices, where, where I kind of want to just pick at it a little bit before we dive deeply into it is how does, how does what you've learned about building these cultures um, adapt or apply to people who maybe are in a position where their relationships are more, um, they're on the other end of, of competitiveness, where somebody's trying to get something over on them. Maybe people aren't being so nice to them. There are, you know, two of us were two white guys here. A lot of doors open for us. Um, naturally, and we don't have some of the systemic barriers. So in a case where maybe somebody's experience isn't that people tend to be nice to them out in the world, that, you know, maybe people walk by them and clutch their purse or they say things mm. that are, um, you know, uh, offensive in some way or another, or uh, that marginalize people. If that's your experience, potentially, how can you take some of these lessons and still be able to apply them in the same way. You get where I'm going with it? I do get where you're going with it. Uh, it's it's a tough question when considered globally and expansively. Yeah. I've thought about it a lot. Um, and I have a couple of thoughts. One is, at times in my life, I felt it uh, overwhelming to consider questions that big and how I can make any impact yeah. um, at a societal level. And the conclusion that, that I've come to is that I don't know the answer to the societal yeah. question. What I do know is the answer to the things that I can impact, the people I touch and the people they touch. Mm -hmm. And so I know one of the questions that you ask people is, is what sort of dent do they want to make in the universe? Yeah, right. So yeah. the, the dent that I want to make in the universe through this company is that uh, the people who work here understand the power of being kind and helpful and generous and pursuing joy in relationships with people. And that 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 understanding echoes through their relationships as well. We've employed uh, at Wheelhouse more than 100 people. In my life, I've probably employed 500 people in the different jobs that I've had. And my hope is that uh, a majority of those people have taken something from that experience and it's been positive and it's then echoed through their relationships. The other answer that I would give is that the the only way that I know to deal with people like that is, uh, or, or dynamics like that is through uh, really deliberate and intentional openness and authenticity and vulnerability. Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable meeting a competitive dynamic with competition because that feels unhealthy and unfriendly to me. And in my business, I actually don't want to work with someone who wants to engage with us on that level. Because if we're going to start there, then it's going to stay there through the relationship. And so the conversations that we have, particularly when that surfaces early, is to say, listen, here's how we like to engage with our clients. And this is the commitment that we make to people who work here as well, that this is going to be a really open and friendly partnership. And we're going to do everything we can for you. We might not be a good fit for you if what you want is a vendor who you can just tell what to do or you can beat on and we're excess capacity. But if you want a partner and you want to have this kind of a relationship, then that's what we'd like to do. 
Uh, and in contract negotiations, uh, even when people are being very competitive, uh, if they open in that way, I don't respond competitively. I respond by being very open and very transparent and telling them what's going to be important to us in structuring an agreement. And then I see how they respond. And more than 50% of the time, the response that I get is first a little bit of confusion um, at the way that I've reacted. But second, people will recalibrate and they'll adjust and become more open as well. Again, I, I, I come back to this notion of people think conventionally. There's an assumption that this is a negotiation and in a negotiation, there's antagonism. And I'm trying to seek leverage over you and you're trying to seek leverage over me. And if I can disarm them by saying, I'm not seeking any leverage. I'll tell you what's going to be important and I'll tell you what's not. If you could tell me what's important to you, then I bet we could figure this out. Most of the time, people will flow with that. Yeah, and I'm also thinking that in uh, the approach of being kind, being generous, being forthright, and I think the other thing that's implied in what you're talking about is standing up for your values. That when you have a culture that is very clear on a commitment to kindness and um, you know fairness and equity and things like that, that when you as a company create the culture that that that's who you are. When you inter when you're interfacing with another company and they don't approach you in kind, if you're all aligned about how you're going to react in those situations. That's what keeps that culture solid around those sorts of values, as opposed to, I think what we see a lot of, because culture has become a very popular topic in the, in the corporate yeah. world, right? And there's people who speak the lingo, but don't actually walk the walk, right? And so they'll say, oh, we care about our people or we have open door, but then they, you know, will allow a client to just crap all over their team in front of them and they just take it because the client has money, right? So I think when you're talking about the, the kindness side of it and all of that, that I think is a really healthy foundation if you have a team that's doing that. But I think the part that you just brought up was about standing for being authentic and standing for your value and and really the importance of having boundaries around, around what you will and won't be willing to accept and do. And I think that that's really important when we take into account that a lot of people are going to have a lot of different experiences and we may not be able to assume that everybody's had the experience of people being kind to them and not um, you know, uh, giving them a hard time. But that when a culture rallies around all of them, we have the opportunity to to really push the ball forward and start to make that kinder world with a better culture. So I appreciate yeah. you you indulging that uh, that little sidebar for me. So I want to uh, dive into specifically like your work and and some of the lessons you've learned and and taking us through that. So I want to start at the natural place, which is at the beginning. So. Imagine that you're talking with somebody who is listening right now and they are, they're in, they're excited. They want to learn. They want to have a great culture built on kindness and generosity. So they're in. Where do we start? What's the first thing that they do? Um, what do they need? Do they need training? Do they need money? Do they need uh, more people? Do they need buy-in at the top? Do they need buy-in below? Do they need their peers? What? Where do we start as a as a first step of like, if you're telling someone tomorrow they get to start doing this stuff, what's the first thing mm -hmm. you do? Yeah. For me, the first thing is to uh, make sure you understand your purpose and the purpose of your business. And that uh, then you ensure that your values are aligned with that purpose. Uh, and for me, um, I, I believe that the purpose of business is to do good in the world. And that the economic outcome is nice, 
but the purpose is to do good in the world. So then we think about uh, building a culture that is oriented around doing good, establishing our values. Our values, in, in my case, our values came from the way that we were behaving. The company had been uh, in operation for about a year and a half, and I just wrote down our decision-making process. What things did we consider when we were making really important decisions? Uh, and who do we want to be as we grow up? And wrote them down, shared them with my team at the time, and we have adjusted them a little bit over time, but they haven't changed a lot because they weren't abstract. They were born of who we were and how we already behaved. And then the next thing that we focused on is operationalizing those values in, I was going to say most, I'm not sure that's true anymore. Uh, in many companies, values are effectively a wall hanging. Uh, they are things that people talk about and they're referred to in the interview process and they're on the HR page on the website, but they're not part of the company operations. And it was really important to us that we operationalize our values, make them a part, a formal part of our decision making, and also put things in place to make our values habits, particularly our unconventional values. So, for example, uh, generosity uh, and joy, which we've not talked about. So there are my belief is there are lots of places to grind it out in the world. I don't actually believe that work should be work here anyway, should be a place where anybody grinds it out. We work hard sometimes, sometimes we work long, but there should be joy involved in our work. Sometimes the joy is related to achieving something that seemed really tough. Sometimes the joy is working on NASA, which is really exciting and doing something that nobody else on the planet is doing. Sometimes it's learning something new. Sometimes it's an interaction with a client or delivering an exceptional result. Sometimes it's something we do with one another, but joy should be a, a steady part of our diet and something that we pursue. So we've done these things to make our values habits. Uh, generosity is a core value. How do you make generosity a habit? Well, you create a context in which people are generous repeatedly at routine intervals. So every quarter we have what's called a generosity day. On generosity day, people in the company get to decide how they're gonna spend their time volunteering and then get to make a financial contribution to an organization. We do this in teams so that uh, folks agree collectively to go do something, but that team gets to decide who they're going to help. The only rule about the way that they spend their time is that they have to be very close, as close as possible to the people they're helping. So you can't go stuff envelopes at United Way. You can go work in a food kitchen or a homeless shelter. You can go to an encampment and help people. Uh, you can do those sorts of things where you're face-to-face -face with need and people whose walk of life is very different from your own, and you can learn something from them. And you can also invert the typical dynamic that we have, right? We're, we're experts every day. We talk with our clients and we're in this position of being the expert on the call or in the room. And this is a day, a quarter, where we are decidedly not expert. We have no idea what we're doing. And it is, uh, it's humbling to do that. So in so doing, the people get to experience uh, the power uh, and the beauty of helping someone else. They get to, to experience their agency in the world, their ability to do good personally and corporately. They get to see the impact of our work and the money that we made on the community. And by doing it repeatedly, and then by celebrating it afterward, because we, we have this day, we talk about doing something for the world. And at the end of the day, we get together and have a little party and we do something for us. But as part of the party, everyone gives a little presentation on what they saw and what they learned. And we build a cultural habit, a cultural norm around generosity. 
And there is, there is neurological research to show that when you associate two things repeatedly, uh, if when you develop a habit, it's, it's called Hebb's law, neurons that fire together, wire together. If you associate generosity with a good feeling and a celebration of this action, you're building a neurological habit. So we do that with generosity. We do the same thing with joy. Joy is a weird thing to pursue in a workplace. It's probably the least conventional of our values and it's the hardest to remember. We give everybody what's called a joy fund. $50 a month, you can spend it any way that you want, except that you have to deliver joy to someone else in the company. Uh, and you can save it up multi-month, you can gang together with other people, you can do whatever you want. And two things result. One, if I'm gonna deliver joy to you, I have to know you well enough to know what gives you joy. So that's benefit number one. Number two is if I can truly deliver joy to you, again, I have a sense of my own agency and value to other people, that I can make other people's lives better if only ephemerally or momentarily. And if I do this repeatedly, again, I'm building a habit, I'm building a cultural norm. And so I think wherever possible, uh, operationalizing values is critical. We uh, bring our values into our review process um, and check in on people, whether they're uh, living our values, whether they're behaving in a way that's consistent with our values. We check in with our clients and ask them explicitly, how are you experiencing these values in your relationship with us? Uh, you asked about money. Do you need money? Well, before I we get there, that... before we get there, I actually have a few things that I, I have to call out yes. on this because I think that they're really important learning. So one of the things I really like to do in this podcast is when I hear something that is like a very clear like takeaway, I want to make sure that I point it out and highlight it. So at the very top of talking about this and these first steps, getting clear on your purpose, right? So getting clear on your purpose, establishing what your values are, operationalizing them, and um, and then I, I really love that you took the operationalized from from not just kind of a generalized behavior that the values were mapped from behaviors, but that you've taken that oper oper operationalizing it down to the habit level. So I want to actually play in this for a little bit before we switch to like resources you might need. Um, so the first thing is, is that when you said the part about your your values came from your behaviors, I immediately started thinking of the original Netflix culture deck. Um, it was one mm. of the first places that I ever actually saw the idea that values should be a, um, a representation of what it is that we value by the behaviors that we incentivize and that we reward right. and that we talk about and that we try to establish. And, and again, I, I just want to call out and appreciate that I like that you've taken it to such a level where you're trying to habitualize those behaviors. So I think one, it, it's a really clear takeaway for people here that if you're going to start, try and figure out what you're about, what are you trying to accomplish? What's your purpose? And I would say that I think there's probably an unspoken or or a part of that that maybe um, you didn't specifically call out, but I'm, I'm pretty sure just based upon everything you're saying so far that you'd agree with this, but understanding how those that purpose and those values actually align with the people on your team's purposes and values. That if you can mm -hmm. make synergy between what it is that I value as a person, as an individual, as a unique person with a unique experience, that if I can have a company value, a corporate value that in some way can align with and overlap with what your values are, um, that's great. So you have joy as one of them, right? If I derive joy from personal growth, we've just aligned one of my personal values with one of our corporate values here. So right. I absolutely love the idea that, you know, if you focus on 
starting with the purpose, trying to align it to your people, establishing what the values are and understanding your people well enough to know where the overlaps are between their values, then trying to operationalize it into a form of behaviors that you incentivize and that you uh, recognize. And then that final step that, again, I keep coming back to that I, I love so much is that you've turned it into habits. I actually just read a book called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg. Can't recommend mm-hmm. this book highly enough. Um, I, I've read um, uh, The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, and I've read Atomic Habits by uh, James Clear. And all three life-changing books for me, uh, Tiny Habits probably edges out as my favorite of them. Um, but this is kind of where I want to stay with you for just a second is um, you wrote down your values. You, you could you said like establish your purpose and the values. And then we kind of went into like what exactly you're doing. For those that are listening, how do you establish the purpose? How do you understand what that is? How do you get clear on that? How did you derive the values from the behaviors? Like what was your process? What did you look at? How did you break that down? And then what was your process of turning those into habits? Into how did you operationalize all of that. So I want to, I want to sure. get like real, like specific on that. Cause I think it's such a, if, if this is all we did in this masterclass, I think that this would be a, a massive, massive win. Uh, but I, I know we still have other things to cover, but I really want to make sure we stop and, and touch on those. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we established our values when the company was still pretty small. I think I had five or six team members and that's it. Um, and again, been in operation for about 18 months. I hired people instinctively, even before the values were uh, formalized, who were aligned behaviorally and attitudinally with the way that I thought business should run. I have long been pretty evangelical about how I think things should be versus how they have been in a business context. And, And I would say that part of that was based on the things that I really, I used that word chafe earlier, right? The things that chafed earlier, the things that didn't fit with who I am intrinsically. Um, I never thought that I would be an entrepreneur. I didn't imagine myself doing that. I thought earlier in my career that I would be a corporate guy. And I it's would just- I get I get the entrepreneurial vibe from you though. I mean, it's- Oh, I, maybe, maybe I couldn't now be anything else now. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what you were like before, but like, yeah, I really well, recognize you. I didn't see you. So before, before I was an entrepreneur in a corporate construct. Um, uh, I just entrepreneur. Really, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, makes sense. Yeah. So it partly was a reflection of those things that, that felt so uncomfortable to me uh, in this other context. And the thought process that I went through, and it was explicit, was if I'm going to do this thing, which I never thought I would do, and is a big risk, I may as well make it exactly how I think business should run. No compromises, no half measures. Um, at the time, uh, I would sometimes hear that the approach that I was taking was naive uh, and maybe destined not to succeed because I was taking such a, an unconventional approach. But I, it was a bet. It was a bet on the good nature of people and that business could run in a different way. Well, it's also about like, um, what is your end goal, right? Like if your end goal is to be a billionaire, then yeah, like that would be a pretty naive approach the way you're taking it because you're incentivized to take advantage of people and to keep labor costs as low as possible and to not to replace people with someone cheaper and to use cheaper materials, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like you're incentivized to do that. But if your goal, that's not your goal. Like your goal is to have a job that you really like and people working in a place where they've experienced joy and, you know, practice generosity. So obviously I think, you know, people assessing that weren't listening when you said like, this is what I'm trying to do. 
Well, you have to know, I needed to know what gives me joy as well. What's going to make me happy in the long term. And the thing that gives me joy, makes me feel great, is helping other people um, and giving them joy, giving them a great experience. And so I tried to create a place that would serve me in that way and also be good for other people. The place I wanted to work is the place I created as opposed to the place that I had been. I think that when you're creating your values, you have to be pretty clear-eyed about who you are and what you really value. There are, you described a process that maybe is for a larger company where you're looking for commonality with the people on your team. What are our shared values? And, and that is an approach. Um, I, I think that that can be a risky approach as well. If you're the entrepreneur and business owner and what you're trying to do is crowdsource values, and those values actually aren't a, na a natural fit for you, uh, because if yeah, you're the leader, just to be of the company, clear, I wasn't. I wasn't suggesting crowdsourcing. What I was, what I was no, saying. No, I know you were. You may have values, I and and you may have established like these are our values. What I was saying is, it's it's good to understand what other people's values are, and then look for a way that those values overlap. Like look for the places of intersection. They may not all overlap. Like I have five values, you have five values, three might overlap. Yep. But look for the ones where like you, people can get jazzed about your values because they're, they overlap with their values. So I just want to make sure that yeah. that was clear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I also think- Yeah, no crowdsourcing really values. Important, <laughs> right. Input's there's a really fine. important distinction, distinction between uh, what values are and the expression of those values. Do we, we emphasize that new employees, new team members are free to express our values in unexpected ways, ways that we've not anticipated and aren't operationalized. And we're gonna take the best of that and incorporate it into who and what we are and what we do and the way we operationalize. So that freedom is really important. You ask then, so once you've uh, decided on your values, which is really an introspective process, I think, and needs to be a deeply authentic and honest process, then you need to share them and formalize them uh, and decide what kind of a litmus test they are, how you're going to use them. First of all, are you? is this the way you're going to hire? If you really care about your values and your culture, I would assert that it needs to be the way you're going to hire, that this needs to be a core check. For us, it is the first check, it's a screen, and it's the last check. Uh, I'm, I interview everybody we hire, and it's mostly a culture fit interview. Mm -hmm. um, and it's an hour long. So we're in the interview process spending an hour and a half to two hours on values. Mm -hmm. It's also a big reason that people are attracted to us. Most applicants say, I've heard about your culture. I understand your values. I've read about this on your website. This seems like a place I want to be. It's also the way that we've been able to retain employees in the face of much bigger public companies with gobs of money coming calling as well. So, so quick question for ahead. you. So you mentioned uh, the two values, generosity and joy. Do you have... Can you just quickly tell me what, what are the sure. other values you have? Yep. Helpfulness. Uh, and we say we exist to be helpful regardless of what's in a contract. Yep. Generosity. We're going to be generous with time resources. Stewardship and trustworthiness, which mm -hmm. are conventional, except that we express them a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. We say we're going to give you the best advice for you, especially when it's contrary to our own interests. Yeah. And then... The fifth is joyfulness, that we will pursue joy in our own daily lives and our relationships with our clients. I that is, I'm so glad that you brought all of those up because I had a theory before you said them. Um, so in the brand work that I do, when we're going through and doing the values experiment, the values part of the process, typically the way that I like to begin that process, the inquiry that I will go into is I go through an entire experiment where I ask 
the owners of the business and the, the people in the room, the stakeholders to talk about the things that are important to them that don't make them any money. That the things that are so important to them that if it costs them money, they would still do it. So I try to yeah. take off the table the idea of profitability because that's so obvious and it's so easy. But when you remove the idea of making money from a value and you think about that's something you actually value because you can't put a price on it. You actually believe in it because it actually has a real value. And I think all of the values you just listed really fit the bill there. They're the sort of thing that would make it into one of our brand documents um, because they're the sort of things that in some cases, these things probably do cost you money out of pocket, at least initially, but you believe in it so firmly that you know that it will come back to help you in the long run. And you know that it you would do it even if it did cost you money. Um, so I really yeah. appreciate that that's, that's and, and I just want to call that out because I think that's a good shortcut for people that when you're trying to do the values experiment, it can feel big and heavy. You said it's deep. It's a, it's like an, it's a process to go through it. The way I like to do it is take money off the table. Imagine you can make the biggest, it's a question I ask at the beginning of a lot of my interviews. What's the dent you want to make in the world? That's how you get to purpose. And then from purpose, take money off the table and start to dig into your values by saying, what would you do? What would you value even if it didn't make you money and it cost you money? Yeah, that's exactly right. We think of it in a very related way. What would you actually pay for? Yeah. What would you invest dollars in? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and, and I found um, the moments when our values really have impact and resonance and become stories internally is when money's on the line. Um, when yes. we decline a client engagement because there isn't a values fit, or we're prepared to say to a, a significant client, we're giving you 90 days notice. We're going to help you find somebody else because there is a misalignment on values. Um, those are the, those are the moments when it really matters. hundred percent. And I, and I think that the, the dividends that that pays to the people on your team, the way that that reinforces your culture, I think of it almost like a, a trust bank, right? That like you spend all this time putting, putting, thing, uh, putting something into the trust bank, right? Like you're making deposits into this bank of trust around this thing that you said you would do and that you would uphold in these values that you would adhere to. And you make these deposits, right. you make these deposits. And every once in a while you get this opportunity where you can do a thing, but it's going to be a gigantic withdrawal. If you, if you do this thing, keep the crappy client that may, you know, that's rude to the people on your team, the, the, you know, the client that yells at your account manager, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Those or the person on your team who just is not treating people with respect and not fitting in, in the appropriate way. Those are the moments where when you take that stand, it actually makes a huge, and that's why this whole layoff thing that's happening right now is so much more than the money you save on payroll that's, that's happening out in the world right now. It, it's so much more because the the confidence that gets shaken in every person that remains and is left behind about when their number is going to get called next, you like that sort of thing is just devastating. So when you can really stand for those values, you're right. Those are the part. Those are the parts where if it costs you money, it may seem like it's a bad idea, but at the same time, it's what's strengthening and reinforcing that culture. Yep, absolutely. And it also guides you when you have to do things that are super uncomfortable. So you were yes. talking about layoffs. Our business shifted uh, in the, the fourth quarter of last year and demand for a part of the business just dissipated really quickly, as happened with lots of agencies. And we had to lay four people off, which was the first time that we'd, we've had two instances where we needed to do that in the history of the company, both very small, four people's very small, but we were able to do it in a way that gave them all really soft landings 
They knew they were going to be cared for through the process. The people who were still in the company knew that they were being cared for in this process. We were all still in touch. It was made clear they didn't disappear. They didn't suddenly become not our friends and people we don't care about. Here are all the things that we're going to help them uh, with, uh, not just financially, but in terms of making introductions and making sure they're connected and they're supported as they look for their next engagement. So it guides, you know, it, it builds trust and security when you're doing um, the happy, comfortable, exciting things. It also gives people reassurance if you hit a bump that you're going to navigate through it in a manner that is consistent with those same values that guide you when the times are great. And since then, we've sort of taken off like a rocket, which has been great. But um, it was still, a, as you said, a moment when you're kind of withdrawing from that trust bank. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to play that carefully. So I want to, um, we were going to talk a bit about like, do you need money? Do you people, I think we've covered a lot of that. And I want to make sure that we get to this next part, which is, um, you know, you do that work, you understand and, and identify purpose. You get clear on what the values are. You've operationalized them. You've made them into habits. And now you're a little bit in the groove of things, right? And I'm curious for the folks that are listening, following along, kind of getting where you're going with it. What would you say is the first kind of like milestone or um, event, something that you would look for to know that things are working? Like, how would you know that the, I, I think one of the challenges with any type of work is that so often there's so many variables, it's hard to know a causal relationship between A to B, right? Mm. And in the work that we're talking about here, I think there are some moments that you can kind of point to the person who comes up to you and says, Hey, I just want to let you know, I really appreciate how it's been around here. Uh, I feel really comfortable here. I feel really appreciated, really supported. And I just want to thank you for that. Like those sorts of moments, you're like big win going home, having pizza. Sure. What would you say for the folks that are listening right now that are planning to go and do that work? They're planning to operationalize in this net and they're they're going along. How are they going to know when they're getting traction and things are starting to move in the right direction? What should they be looking for? I think there are a couple of things. These are the moments when I started to feel really good about our culture and values. It's when I heard shared language coming back to me from other people and I heard decisions being made and the justifications for those decisions being articulated in the context of our values by other people when those decisions were made and I wasn't in the room. Love it. Love it. I th and that's such a, it's so tangible, right? Like when you've done that work and you've got a document that's like, here are the values, here's who we are. And then six months later, one of those moments happen where something big is happening and you see people living the values. Uh, that is absolutely something worth looking for. Um, yeah. In terms of the, either the process of getting from that first starting point we talked about to the milestone or from the part of the milestone into the future and how you continually optimize and grow these cultures. What are some of those critical steps that you continually focus on or either that you focus on early on or that you focus on later in the game where you know that you have to keep paying attention to one thing or another? Like what's a critical step or a critical piece of it that you always have your eye on? Yeah. There are a couple of things. So I mentioned shared language. I think shared language is really important. The phraseology that you use that describes the behavior associated with a value uh, that justifies and reinforces it and gives people a way in sometimes to a, a tough conversation or a different way to look at things. Uh, an example of that is we've got a document with all sorts of uh, shared language in it. 
one of the phrases that is often used is telling the kind truth. So I talked about conversations with clients, uh, a client that's gone off the rails, the relationship isn't good, uh, or maybe a conversation with an employee where something's really gone wrong and it's a little bit toxic. So telling the kind truth is saying, look, I think we don't have a good fit anymore. Here's the commitment we've made to our team member. You seem to want something else. Here's where we're not aligning, but here's what we're going to do about it. You can do it without acrimony. You can do it in a way that can be heard by the other person. They don't feel accused. And you're just kindly moving through transparency and authenticity, but also potentially a transition. The beauty of that is that most of the time when we have that conversation with the client, they change their behavior. They hadn't quite realized what was happening. Um, and things pivot sometimes quite dramatically. Um, so a, a focus on that. Um, and I have lost my train of thought. Remind me of the, the question that you asked. So I was asking about, uh, critical steps in the process, um, how critical to understand, you know, what, what things are you keeping your eye on? So, uh, you gave yeah. me the example of, um, yep. you know, making sure exactly. that you're, you're watching over it. Like, again, the language was a big piece of it, but, uh, any yeah. other kind of critical pieces of it that, you know, as a leader, somebody who's doing this work and trying to make it happen. What, would, what else are you keeping your eye on? Two other things. Um, one is um, reinforcing values by telling people why we're doing what we're doing. Mm -hmm. um, we're making an announcement. This is a thing that we're doing because this value is important to us. We're celebrating this particular event. We're acknowledging that this uh, day has cultural significance. We're spending time on this uh, we're spending time together. And the reason we're doing these things ties back to this value and what we have agreed has value together. We do that constantly, uh, much more than I would have thought initially was required. Uh, I think naively, I thought, well, we've established our values. We've talked about them quite a lot. I certainly talk about them a lot. That should be sufficient. And now we're going to do the things that are associated with the values. But the more that we contextualize our actions and our investments and our behaviors in values, uh, the more meaningful the actions and behaviors become and the more we're reinforcing our values. The second thing that's critical is that uh, years ago, we established a weekly feedback loop that we pay very close attention to. And the feedback loop is often tied to our values, not every week, but often. Uh, and even if it's not explicitly tied to our values in terms of questions that we ask in uh, this poll that we send out weekly, there are freeform areas where people can let us know if they have other concerns. Uh, and so because of the way we hire, because we emphasize this notion of being a contribution to the culture and having full license and full agency to speak up if we're ever out of alignment on our values or something feels off, there is a pretty constant feedback loop telling us when we're on, when we're a little bit off over here. Uh, and we pay really close attention to that and are very responsive to any feedback that suggests that we're off track related to our values. Love it. Love it. All right. So I have uh, one final kind of question, and then I want to kind of open it up to anything I may have missed that you think is important for people to know. But we talked a bit before about sort of like initial um, initial sort of like um, hallmarks or milestones of success, things to look for. Um, I want to shift it into the context of kind of a purely business context, uh, which is admittedly not my most comfortable place in the world. I'm very much about people. But in the context of business, when we think about uh, having organizational success, either whether it be, you know, uh, lack of attrition and, and you know, employee loyalty, 
uh, people, you know, loving their job, employee satisfaction surveys, or the very obvious, which is, you know, bottom line type metrics. When you're doing this sort of culture work, um, most of the people that would listen to an episode like this and make it this far already believe in the idea that culture matters, most likely. Maybe one or two of you out there listening are like kind of reluctant. You want to see if we can make the case for it. So for those of you that are in that second group, what would you say to people that want to know how to measure the actual business success? The the, the bottom line, why does this matter from a uh, from a standpoint of why a business person should care if what they actually care about is results? Why should they go through this effort? What sort of ways are they measuring success out, you know, coming out of this sort of work? Because one of the things that has delighted and stunned me and excited me is that helpfulness and generosity are tremendous engines for business development. They're the way that our company has grown very quickly. So for years, we had no formal BD or marketing. We just had our values in action. Do good work for clients, be helpful, be generous, and really importantly, behave in that way without expectation. Don't be helpful and generous with your other hand held behind your back, waiting to swoop out and get some money or or with one eye on the next SOW that uh, you want to sign with somebody. Just do it because this is the right way to behave with people. When you engage with people like this uh, on a client level, the dynamic is so different. They're so much more open to exploring additional opportunities with you, talking about the art of the possible. And if your motivation is let's help figure this out. And I'm doing this because I want to help you succeed. That's my aim. It's not, I want to find a way to uh, unlock another project. The dynamic is entirely different. It is not unusual for our clients to say, we think we should pay you more for this work that you're doing. I think that's fantastic. Uh, I'm oriented much more like you. I'm much more focused on people than I am on the business side. I like the money that comes from business. It's not nearly as important than the people and what we're doing from a, a purpose perspective. Prior to having this company and behaving in this way, I hated business development because it always seemed like uh, a sort of a kabuki theater where I'm going to pretend to be your friend and uh, we're going to go through this, this sort of orchestrated thing where I'm going to cozy up to you and I'm going to always be looking for the angle, the way to convince you that my solution or my product or my service is the thing that you should want. And I'm trying to convince you of that. That's really uncomfortable to me because it seems unkind and inauthentic. Um, and I experienced that when I was an executive with other companies, which is part of why I recoiled from it. We don't do that at all. When I talk with someone or someone in the company talks with someone who's a prospective client, the conversation is about them. What do you want to achieve and what's important to you and uh, what are your challenges and limitations? And we're not looking to force fit what we do into what they need or convince them or any of anything. We're looking to help them. And sometimes the help is you really shouldn't spend any money with us. Uh, because A, we're overkill, or B, the thing you're asking for, we've, we've actually assessed your site and your competitive landscape, and the thing that you think you want to do is not a thing you should do. Uh, you should do this other thing, and we don't do it, but here are some other people who do. And when you just help, that drives business. It doesn't necessarily drive business in the way that you think in the moment. Uh, you might not be doing business with the person you're helping, but the person you're helping will be left with a good taste in their mouths. And they'll know that you're people they can trust and that others can trust. 
And there will be an echo from that behavior that uh, may be unexpected and yet is pretty consistent. And that's been my experience for years. The more we do the right thing, the more that we behave in the right way, the more that we are truly and authentically generous and helpful without expectation, the better the business becomes. It's that age old saying of people do business with those that they know, like, and trust. And it like sounds so simple, but it, it, it generally just works that way that if people like you and if people trust you and if people can remember you because they know you and they, they, uh, or, or they liked you and they trusted you, chances are they're going to come back. And, and that's how you build a brand is that consistency over time. So I'm with it. I'm with all that you've been saying. Uh, I, I love the work that you're doing. I love that you came on here to share it with us. Um, I'm going to leave you with um, kind of a, a final question with regard to what we've been covering in the masterclass. Uh, and then I'm going to ask you one final question before we sign off. But uh, I want to give you an opportunity to just share anything else you think that um, we missed that, that you think is important to the conversation. And then I'd like you to actually just tell people where they can go and connect with you, learn more about you, uh, hire you, have you on their podcast, uh, just have a conversation with you, be generous with you, experience joy with you. Um, so do it in that order. Anything that's been uh, you know, itching on your mind that you want to make sure you get in uh, before we sign off and then where people can go and find you. I would say the one thing I would mention is, you know, you're asking about resources, what things you need to build culture. I would say lots of reading is good. Learning from other people is good. So I'd mention a few books that have been really impactful. One is The Art of Possibility uh, by Benjamin Zander. It's a fantastic book that uh, really undoes conventional thinking and frees you to think about not just business, but life in a different way and in a very generous way and in a very optimistic way, which I like. Uh, the other is a book called The Culture Code, which is a great analysis of lots of different types of cultures and good exemplars. It's an easy read. And uh, finally, I would say Pretty Much Anything by Patrick Lencioni. Awesome. Uh, I I would love to compare reading lists with you. Uh, I have an almost an endless book list at this point, and um, I will never get to them all. That Twilight Zone yeah. episode uh, never made sense to me as a kid, but now ooh, the whole, the, I, I broke my glasses thing. Uh, anyway, uh, where can people go and find you and learn more about you, connect with you, uh, et cetera? Sure. Uh, our website is wheelhousedmg.com. I can be reached by email Aaron at wheelhousedmg.com. On Twitter, I'm slash Aaron Burnett. They can reach me on LinkedIn as well. Same thing. Uh, Aaron Burnett is my profile. Cool. I'll have all that in the show notes. So if you've been listening along uh, and you want to know where to get in touch with Aaron, uh, it'll all be in the show notes. So Aaron, I'm going to leave you with the final question uh, and then we're going to sign off. Uh, I do this in uh, all of my uh, interviews, but I, I like, I'm going to bring it to the master class here, which is um, uh, I like to end the show with some gratitude and not gratitude. Um, you know, in, in, in a, a generic or sort of vague, I mean, very direct gratitude, people that we could be directly grateful for. Um, and I mentioned at the beginning, I wrote a book called The Lovable Leader. And that term really, I've found resonates with people because they, it, you can feel lovable leader, right? Like you can feel what that is. And in your head, almost everybody can think of somebody that that term applies to. And the way I define a lovable leader is someone who cares about the people that they are leading, that there's a sense of care between them uh, and the people on their team, that there's a sense of trust, deep trust, that you trust them, they trust you. There's a mutual trust 
uh, in that relationship and that they provide what I call safe travels. That's the idea that they're going to set big and ambitious goals for you. They're going to expect a lot from you and they're going to make sure that you're safe along the way to fail uh, and to grow into those bigger ambitions that align with your own. So this leader cares, trusts, provides safety on the way to big goals. So I hope in your head, you can think of someone who matches that profile. And what I like to do at this point is just mute myself and let you speak directly to that person and express any gratitude you have or thanks, whether it be just a simple, hey, you know, Bo, thanks so much. You were awesome. Uh, all the way to whatever it is you feel like you need to say. They can be people that are here. I've had people speak to, to people who have passed on. It's completely your call how this resonates with you. But I always think it's a good opportunity for all of us to express a little more gratitude in our lives uh, for people who have made an impact. So with that, I mute myself and I turn it over to you. There are two people I'd like to thank. One is my first manager, Chris Ives, uh, for whom I worked at first Macaw Cellular and then AT&T Wireless. And Chris just showed so clearly what it meant to deeply and authentically care for the people who worked for her. And to make joy a valued part of the work that we did individually and together. Uh, there were so many little and big things that Chris did uh, both to change my thinking and also to give me opportunity and uh, to make the work that we were doing together really exciting. He believed in me uh, and my ability to do some pretty audacious things that other people doubted early in my career. And that made such a big difference to me. The other person I would mention is one of the first CEOs I worked for named Maggie Schimpf who also was very kind and caring and smart and had bigger plans and a bigger vision for me than I had for myself at that time, uh, which was inspiring and also changed my thinking. So tell me, what was most valuable or useful for you in this episode? Send me a message or hit me up on social media. I'm easy to find, but there's links in the show notes just to make it easy. Seriously, I'd love to hear from you. If you enjoyed this episode, there's a couple things you could do, starting with subscribing to the show. And after that, head on over to Apple Podcasts and rate the show five stars and leave a review. Consider sharing this episode with someone you think would enjoy it. Or just buy me a latte or an old-fashioned by hitting up that tip jar. If you're looking for a good book to read, may I suggest The Lovable Leader? which covers how to build great teams with trust, respect, and kindness. It's built exclusively for brand new managers, and it's a handbook that will serve you well in your journey of leadership. Just search for Lovable Leader wherever books are sold online. And finally, if you're interested in working with me or checking out any of my other projects, go to jgibbard.com. That link, as well as every other link mentioned, will be found in the show notes. Stay safe, be kind, and seriously, share this episode with someone. I'll see you on the next episode of Shareable. Thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm.